his reign. I'll be reading out of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 19 through 22, and chapter 32, verses 44 to 47. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. 32 verses 44 to 47. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Deuteronomy is early on in your Bible, and we are at the very end of our time working through this book together. And as we've read so far, if you've seen and been with us, you might have known like about the, the Ten Commandments in Israel. And as they were almost this way that you could talk about the Israelites, this is their constitution. This is how the, the ten words which, which they are to hang on and live by, so to speak. Then, then this song in chapter 32 is, is a national anthem of sorts, a, a national song for the people of Israel. Now, most National songs, national anthems would be songs that would stir up pride and courage for your nation or, or hope for a bright future. And this song is a little bit darker than that. In verse 46, as you saw in chapter 32, this is a song that Moses uses to urge this people to, to listen to that they might take it as a warning to them. Because God knows of their sinful inclinations that when they get into the promised land, they will be quick to turn away from him. He gives them this song to warn them to not go in that direction. It's a song that he says it's meant to warn you that you might then do the words of this law, that you might obey and live in obedience to God, that they might be a people who continue to move in dependence upon their God. As they moved in dependence upon him in the wilderness with manna every day and his sustaining power. In verse 47, he says to them, this, these are no empty words. This is not a vain song. It's not just something for you to memorize and it's good to pull out when you want to stir up Israelite you know, nationality within you and your pride for, for your nation. It's no vain song. You need to hang on to it that you might hang on to life. 
Now this song in chapter 32 is not too different than the curses that we've already looked at throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It serves like those curses, like the curses that were pronounced on those mountains, as another witness against them. To warn them that they might choose in the midst of them, they might choose and let this witness be uh, more momentum for them to choose life that is in front of them in the promised land. And so this song follows the rest of the book of Deuteronomy and putting before Israel, again, as they prepare for the promised land, the choice of life. It's meant to help them to be a people who continue to be a people who move in dependence upon God's word, that they might fear God and keep his word. And so Moses is to teach this song to Israel as a witness. And it's easy to to pass on and remember, but first... Moses says in verse, you know, uh, verse 1 that he, he spoke this word out. So, you know, it is a song. The end, he says he spoke it. He spoke it with Joshua. So maybe they sang it together, you know, a duet. Uh, but it does say that he, he did speak this. So I'm not going to sing it this morning, uh, as I think that would also be a grace to you. I'm going to speak it like Moses did originally to teach it to you first. So, all right, so verse one, he spoke it to them, and he calls the heavens and the earth to bear witness. In verse 1, give ear, O heavens, and I am going to speak. Let the earth and hear the words of my mouth. So heaven and earth are going to be witness. They've been witness to this covenant renewal process the whole time. In chapter 30, verse 19, he called heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And what does he want? Choose life that you may live long in the land and your offspring. In chapter 31, verse 28, there was another witnessing of heaven and earth. Assemble to me all the elders, speak to them, call heaven and earth to witness against them. Here he calls heaven and earth again to witness against Israel. And this witness and the witness to Israel from the last few chapters, from all the covenant renewal, is now the law, and and now we have this song, and now heaven and earth are called to bear witness as well. So we have three witnesses against them here in the end of Deuteronomy. So verse 2, he goes on and says, may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like the showers Upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Rain, and this picture of rain is life giving stuff, right? And this teaching, this song, because it is the very words of God, because it proclaims the name of the Lord and the greatness of this God, is life giving. So, in the Lord and in the name of the Lord, in this song that proclaims the name of the Lord, is life. And so in telling of his name rightly, here's what this life does. It produces early on in the song, as you see in so many songs throughout the scripture, doxology, praise to God. It directs us upward in praise to God, proclaiming his name, ascribing greatness to him. If you're telling of his name and knowing of his name rightly, there's always doxology, which overflows here in this song and always overflows into describing the greatness of God. And here's how he describes him in verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Now, rocks, that may not conjure up in our minds a lot of great things. I mean, rocks are, are common. We're not talking about diamonds here. He doesn't call God the diamond or the, the gemstone. Like, it's, it's the rock, right? It's, so it's a little bit more common, and it may not sound 
that impressive. But this is a, when he says of the Lord that he's the rock, again, it's doxological. It's, it's, it's praise to God to call him the rock, to, to those that they would have originally heard this, the Israelites. These are wilderness travelers. To wilderness travelers, the image of God as the rock would have been especially impactful. Think about a rock in a wilderness. In a place full of shifting sand, a rock can be solid and sturdy and dependable. In a place that's a a barren wasteland, this rock can be a place of protection and shelter, a place to hide from the heat or from the enemy. That's why when he is talking about God as the rock, it's not just like, this is a common rock. We don't need to say much about it. Like it's, it's full of praise. This is the rock we're talking about. This, this God whose name we're proclaiming and his greatness, we could describe him as the rock. And it's worth just pausing and asking in, in the kind of the shifting sands of our lives, if we know God as the rock. In barren places, where do we run for shelter and protection? That's the image of the rock, and God is the rock. And so we can think about the shifting sand of our lives and the barren places in our own lives and think, well, where do we run in those places? Where are we finding shelter and protection? What are we finding dependable and sturdy in the midst of our ever-changing lives and an ever-changing world? Do we run to the one who is the rock, or do we run elsewhere? Could we say, as the psalmist says in chapter 18, verse 2, that the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Could that be a a song of praise that you could put on your own lips as true? And so we read that God is the rock, and it's not maybe the most impressive sound or pressing noun that we could put on and ascribe to God. But to those who would have heard it, it would have meant something. And in fact, it's even further than that. To those who would have experienced God as the rock throughout their wilderness wanderings, it would indeed lead to praise as it does here. Israel understood these words when it said he's the rock. As wilderness travelers, as those who'd experienced in this wilderness, in this barren place, the dependability of God to provide for them, to sustain them, all the way down to their shoes that they were wearing, they would have understood this rock as a, as a great term to describe their Lord who had kept them and protected them, sheltered them, and been dependable throughout. And verse 4 is describing this rock's absolute perfection in all things. He's known, he's the rock who's known by his perfect work and his just ways. Everything he does is absolutely perfect. You remember that Israel was to repeat the Shema in chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, And that means more than this, but not less than that this Lord who is one is this God who is incomparable. That he is distinct from all other gods and all other things. That he alone is the Lord. He is incomparable in his work and in his nature and in his attributes and in his being. And verse 4 is trying to capture a bit of that in words in a song to say that his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's the God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. This song reflects this by immediately doing what it does. It soars to the heights of praise to God. There's praise that fill the first three and four verses of this song. And yet we know that this song isn't going to stay there. As quickly as it soars to the heights and praise to God, it almost just as quickly and very much intentionally plummets down in speaking of another thing. In verse 5, they, speaking of Israel, 
have dealt corruptly with him, and they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. We went from soaring on the heights with the rock to hitting rock bottom with the corruption and sinfulness of the people that he speaks of. The song was easy to sing up until this point. Maybe all of Israel would have been excited. And then Moses hits this different note in verse 5. It's no longer easy to sing. And there's these stark contrasts of God and who he is in verses 1 through 3 and Israel. The they, verses 5 and following. God is this one who is just, verse 4. They're corrupt. God is the one who is perfect. They're blemished. God is upright and they're crooked. Now this song, as he sings it, this is a song for them to sing once they get into the promised land. They're on the edge. They're about to go in. So it's a song for them in the future. But if you think about this song and the way it describes Israel, it could describe another generation that had just passed. A crooked generation. Have you ever heard of a quick crooked generation? Likely you would think about the generation that came out of Egypt that wandered in the wilderness because of their sin. They were characterized like that, crooked, twisted. They were an evil generation. They provoked the Lord. They were quick to sin. They were full of complaining and ingratitude and disbelief and arrogance. And in response to God's greatness, verse 5 describes a coming generation that gives a similar response to this same God. They respond to him by dealing corruptly with him. They're crooked and twisted. Their blemish, and they are blemished, that shows that they are not children is that they've cast off God. And what the song does is it takes those that are this, in this crooked and twisted generation and it confronts them. Verse 6 says, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? The song confronts their wicked response to God and to his greatness, their rejection of his fatherhood with these questions, calling them to reflect on how they've responded and why. And he says, this is how you repay the one who, the father who created you? That, that word create is, is not the same word that we see in Genesis when it says God created the heavens and the earth. So Genesis 1, it's a different word create. That would be true of all people, right? God created all man. So that could be true of all. But this create is one that alludes more specifically to Israel. You see a similar word is found in Isaiah chapter 43. Same root. He says, but now thus says the Lord. He who created you. Again, that's not the word from Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. He created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. That's the same word that's used here when he talks about create. And so that word create is alluding to a little bit more specifically to Israel. And you remember that Israel wasn't special in and of themselves, right? They weren't special in any way in the sense of power, wisdom, riches, might, they weren't more numerous. They were a distinct nation because of their God. They were distinct because God, in verse 6 terms, created them. Their father created them. And the right response to one who created them, made them, 
established them, making them his very own child, which are all acts of pure grace from God, is to receive his fatherhood, to be his distinct people as he's called them to be. And instead, the response we see in verse 6 is that they deal corruptly with him and live in sin. That's why that their response in verse 6 is called foolish and senseless. Because there's no greater folly in all the earth than rejecting God's fatherhood. Indeed, as Israel rejecting his specific fatherhood over them as a people. And so verses six, verse 6 questions are trying to pierce through the folly and the senselessness and call them back to something different. The questions call for reflection. And that's where the song goes next as it calls them to not only reflect on themselves but look back on the works of God. Verse 7 says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. Remember, he says. That, that implies that God's grace and greatness, that the things that they could see him as, the rock, that they weren't hidden to him, to them. Now, all the works and the things that God has done, those things weren't hidden away. They were, in fact, written down, but they also could turn to those around them and say, tell us about what God has done. Because he hadn't hidden it. And they could give testimony to those things. It was revealed to every generation that God was great, that he is the rock. They could know it. They could ask one another about it. It's been displayed not only to them as a people, but to the nations. You remember that God pulls Israel out of Egypt. And part of that was that he was displaying his greatness to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and to all the earth. And so they can really remember And what do they remember? Verse 8, you remember when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. In other words, he ascribes to God as the, the one who is the Most High God, the sovereign of all the nations. He is the one who has assigned all the boundaries of all these nations as the one who is sovereign over them. And yet his eye has been especially to Israel. Verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He's the most high of all of the nations. He's the sovereign of the nations. He's assigning boundaries, and yet he keeps his eye especially on Israel. He chose Israel out of all of these nations. He set his love upon Israel out of all of these nations. You remember what he says in chapter 7, verse 6? You, speaking of Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He had set his love upon them. He had chosen them. He had redeemed them. He had sustained them. He had brought them to the point of the promised land. He had promised that land to them, promised victory and the dispossession of the nations in the land because they are his people. He, they are the ones who, verse 10, he found in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. He kept them as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. No foreign god was with them. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat of of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. Because Israel is the apple of God's eye, because he has 
chosen them, because are they, they are his distinct people, because he created them. He made them and established them. God moves them from the waste of the wilderness, from slavery and the wilderness land that they have just come through, moving them into a land that he has described over and over again in Edenic terms as this land that's flowing with milk and honey. The very things that he describes as having given them here in these verses. And so from the ordering of ancient boundaries for all the nations to the choosing, redeeming, sustaining, and giving of the promised land to Israel, God has displayed his grace to them, his love to them, his greatness to them, his fatherhood to them. They've all been displayed to Israel throughout the generations. They've all been evident. And so what they're to remember and what should lead them to this grateful receiving of God's ongoing fatherhood is all that God has done and all that he's shown himself to be. They are to remember those things and receive his fatherhood. Keep him as this one who they want to be over them, the the king of their lives. Remembering is what he says to them to do in verse 7. Remember these days. And that remembering, it's not just mere mental recall. It's not just like you just bring these memories up. It's keeping in front of their mind so that that might move them into acting. Right? That, that's what the remembering is meant to do. And, and they had been given regular rhythms to remember the character and work of God. They had been given feasts and offerings and, and times to read the law and even to sing this song that Moses is putting forth. They had regular rhythms that had been placed in front of them so they might be able to look back and remember the works of the Lord, remember who he is, remember what he's done, remember how he fathered us and sustained us and kept us and provided for us so that we might continue to receive his word and to live under it, to do what he tells us to do and to fear him rightly. And yet we know that Israel has a bit of a checkered past with remembering, don't they? I think of Numbers 11 right away. In Numbers 11, they remember, but they remember something wrongly, I think. In verse 5, Numbers 11, verse 5, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt, right? They're out in the wilderness. God is providing for them literally bread from heaven. That doesn't happen every day. He gives them water from rocks. Like he's provided everything they need. Their shoes, as they're wearing them, as they're complaining against him, aren't wearing out, even though they probably should. And here's what they're saying. Hey, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the, the onions, and the garlic. They're, they're remembering. There's not an incapability of, of the Israelites to remember. They can remember things, although they are remembering with a skewed version of what happened. And what's going on in Numbers 11 is they're not just rejecting the, the kind of the manna diet that God has given to them in the wilderness and saying, like, I'm tired. of. They're not just rejecting that. They're rejecting God's care for them, his provision for them. All of that in the wilderness. They're, they're remembering things, but their, re- their remembrance is skewed. And so it leads to sinful complaining and sinful actions and sinful arrogance and sinful disbelief before the Lord and before one another. And this song sings to a, a new generation in the promised land to remember rightly, to remember how God loved, to remember how God redeemed, to remember how he sustained, to remember how he richly provided for them, how even in the land, the things that they're enjoying have all been given by God. And so like generations prior, their, their actions, their response to all that God has done, to all that he is, is going to show whether they're, gonna re- whether they're remembering rightly or not. And though Israel was especially loved, Though Israel had especially received God's kindness and care and the gift of this land that's flowing with milk and honey, 
their response is off. Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat, and they kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek, and then he forsook, the, the, forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. I read on the internet, and because it was on the internet, it's surely true, that 52% of accidents, car accidents, happen within a five-mile radius of your home. And then if you expand that radius to 10 miles, then that accounts for 69% of all accidents. Now, part of that can be described as like, well, that's probably where people do most of their driving within a 10-mile radius of their home. That's probably true. But it's also true because that 10-mile radius and even 5-mile radius is the radius of, of driving and streets and turns all the, that are the most familiar. And familiarity with those situations, with the, the driving condition, all that time, familiarity can easily lead to being distracted. Like, oh, I'm, I'm almost there. Now's the time I can answer that message, or now's the time I can turn my attention elsewhere, because I know this so well. It can easily lead to distraction. It can easily give you some sense of, of self-confidence, that I've got this because, oh, now we're almost home. It can easily lead to presumption. And all those things are, are major contributors, major factors in that 69% of accidents or 52% of accidents. And that's what's going on with Israel. That they are in this familiar place in the promised land. This is what the song is singing of. They have become self-confident as if they had provided for themselves in the land. Like, look at all this stuff that we're enjoying, this wine and these curds and the honey, all this stuff, and they are forgetting where it had come from. They're being presumptuous. It's as if they have a sense of, of amnesia. It's like, how, how did we get here? I don't know, but here it is, and we've done so well. Haven't we No, God sustained you that whole time. He kept you alive in the wilderness. He actually gave you water and food so that you might survive until this point. And all these things that you're enjoying in the land, where did those come from? You didn't plant those things. You didn't build those houses. God gave you that as you dispossessed the nations that were already there. They're becoming presumptuous. They forgot where all this has come from. Instead of receiving the gifts rightly and then tracing those gifts up and thanking the giver that had provided for them richly, they continue to move in self-reliance. Instead of moving in dependence and trust in God and looking for his provision and thanking him for provision, they get fat. Instead of receiving his fatherhood of the one who, who had made them and established them, he says that they turn to non-gods. Instead of remembering the one who bore them in the wilderness, who had saved them from Egypt, they were unmindful and they forgot. They're a picture of presumption and entitlement. And you've got to ask, have the people of God really changed? Too often, I think we can be like presumption in Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read that, Pilgrim goes through the cross scene and he comes out the other side and he finds presumption is one of the men that he finds sleeping. And he wakes him up and he rouses him and he says like, I've heard that Satan is prowling, seeking someone to devour. Like, don't sleep. Wake up. And he just goes back to sleep. And too often, I think that we can mirror that. 
we can presume on the grace of God. When, when we fail to take God seriously, we're presuming upon his kindness. When, when we fail to take the warnings from God seriously, we're presuming upon his mercy. When we fail to take the, the warnings and wisdom that God has given to us, these are the ways to walk in when we're presuming on his grace. We can hear Jesus say, here's how you need to pray. Asking each day, give us today our daily bread. And yet so often we can quickly move through that because the bread's just in front of us all the time. Instead of keeping ourselves dependent upon this God who in him we live and move and have our being, it's so easy to move from that to presuming. We can presume on God's grace when we think the sin is no big deal. Or that we can figure out a way to justify it. Like maybe the means are bad, but at least the end is good, and so it'll be okay. Or we can justify our sin by saying, yeah, I might be sinning here, but I'm going to be forgiven. Those are all presumptuous. They're presuming upon the grace of God. Oh, I think we rightly sing amazing grace. And we remember, this is the grace that Newton writes of that has brought us safe thus far. And we can celebrate that, and we should celebrate that and sing that. And likely all of us can identify that. It's like, we're not here apart from God's grace. We'd recognize that and identify that. But what does that grace then do? You don't move on from it. It's grace that's going to, not only has brought us safe thus far, but it's grace that's also going to lead us home. If we rightly know the grace that has brought us safe thus far, then we also know that that's the grace that we're going to need to lead us home. And so we don't get presumptuous. We don't let that grace then lead us to some sort of self-confidence. We don't let that grace uh, let us grow familiar with God and who he is. And so we like we presume upon him. We don't let it get distra- make us distracted. We trust in it. We rely upon it. We don't want to move pre- in presumption. We want to rely on God and trust in him for all things because it's the grace, that, his grace that has brought us this far. And it's only by his grace that we're going to go any further. But are we those kind of people? Or are we going back to sleep? In, in Pilgrim's Progress, the, the kind of the second volume, Christiana comes by. And, and these that were sleeping were all dead. They had failed to heed the warning. May it not be so for those who hear God's word and, and hear of those who could walk in presumption and say, let's not go that way. Israel has, in this song presumed on God's grace and provision. They're not relying upon God in the promised land as they're meant to rely. And so here's God's response. The Lord, he saw it. He sees it all. Like We're not pulling a fast one on God. Like he gave us the promised land, but it's a pretty big place. And so I can enjoy my life over here apart from him. And he's not going to see. He sees. He saw. And he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spin my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. 
outdoors the sword shall be reaved, and indoors terror. For young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. These are horrors, again, that if they weren't written down for us, we'd probably never dare speak of God doing to another, to a person, pouring out upon people. But God saw their acts. He saw the way they responded to his grace. And this is what it provokes in him. Israel, by their life, by the way they've responded to the greatness of God, the one who is their rock, who created them and made them, established them in the promised land, they are inviting the curses that God had said, if you go this way, these curses are going to fall upon you. And they are inviting them on there because of their faithlessness and idolatry. Notice that the descriptive language, and part of it is descriptive in a wrong way, but notice how intimate some of it is. These are sons and daughters. Once that he turns his face from, in other words, his face was toward them. That is an intimate way to describe God with a people. His face is toward them. These are his children. And so when God is pouring out these curses upon them, this is no cold-hearted, distant God. This is not one that they rejected, but he is pretty far away from them anyway. This is one who had been their father, their redeemer, their rock. And because of the intimacy of God and his love for them, there's an intensity in his anger. It's not incompatible with his love. It's actually part of his love. Because he loves them so greatly, he can't just let them walk in sin and that be okay. As if another lover for his beloved children would be okay for them. And so you see the intensity of his anger. And yet in the midst of this intense judgment that he's going to pour out, there, there are hints of grace and hope. They're small, but we can see them. Notice that he's going to make them jealous. He, he's going to use something to make them jealous so that they might repent and believe. Paul's going to pick this up later and, and say that this is part of what God is doing in pouring out these curses and saving the, the nations is that he's trying to draw Israel back. Further, Though the covenant has been completely broken and the curses are falling upon Israel, it's not total destruction. Look in verse 26. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand. Lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did ours. So part of what is out there, at least in the mind of God, is that I will blot your memory from the earth. That's what they deserve. That's the judgment that they've invited upon themselves. But notice what God is looking out for here. His own reputation, his own glory. We, we, we have a hard time thinking about the judgments that God would pour upon his people here and upon the nations which he's getting ready to describe here because we don't understand what God's main goal is. God's going to be glorified. And his glory he gives to no other. Non-negotiable. And so when we understand that God cares most about God and that's good and right and holy, then all those other things start to make a little more sense. He says in Psalm 23, that the prayer is, lead me in paths of righteousness. Why? For my name's sake, for your name's sake, God. He, he blots out our transgressions and sins. Why? For his name's sake, for his glory, for his reputation, for his fame. And that's good and right because God is holy. But here he's looking out for his own reputation and he won't blot them out because he's looking out for it. Do you, you remember when 
he threatened before Moses to wipe out the Israelites, and Moses, he, he comes and he intercedes for them. He does this a couple different times. In, in Exodus chapter 32, this happens. The golden calf situation is going on, and he says, why don't you go ahead and go down, Moses? I'm going to wipe them out, because they've already so quickly turned away from me. What kind of people is this? I'll start over with you. And, and Moses, he intercedes for the people, and, and it shows, I think, that Moses had a lot of wisdom in his intercession, because here's what he says. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. What does he say might happen? Like, what are the Egyptians going to say? And, and not just about this people. What are the Egyptians going to say about you? God, your reputation is on the line here. That's how he intercedes. He, he does it again in Numbers chapter 14. He intercedes again as the people rebel again. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. It worked that last time. Let's talk about it again. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of clouds by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. They're going to say you weren't able, God. Don't let them say that. That's how he prays. It's not the point of, of the text today, but like that's a good way to pray. God, your reputation is on the line in my life. Purify me. God, your reputation is on the line. Your glory is at stake in our church. God, magnify your name through us. Like we, we know that we're sent out to make disciples of all nations. Like your glory is, is had when people are saved. So magnify your name in sending us out and making disciples of those nations. Pray that kind of way. Pray about the glory of God and his reputation. He loves to protect it and keep it. He's very passionate about his own glory because he's holy and infinite and good. But Moses' intercession is very wise, and it's effective intercession. He knows, and, and the psalmist picked this up too. In Psalm 115, verse 2, why should the nations say, where is their God? It's a good question. God doesn't want the nations to say, where is their God? He wants them to know. And so God knows how quick the arrogance of the nations is stoked, of his own people, but also of the nations. And so when he pours these curses out, he doesn't want the nations to say, the Lord didn't do all these things. So he said, I would cut them to pieces. I would wipe them off the face of the earth had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, lest their enemies should misunderstand and say, our hand is triumphant. As if we have done this, and it wasn't the Lord using those enemies and those nations as a tool for his judgment. He won't stand that. That seems an intolerable thought. The enemy taunts, and the, enemy, the enemy's taunts are going to stay the hand of God from blotting out Israel from underneath the face of the earth. So the curses spoken of should make clear to Israel and to the nations that this is the Lord, and that none should miss what verse 28 and 30, 28 through 30 says, that the Lord has done this. And he says in 28, they are a nation void of counsel and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. For how could one have chased a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up 
28 through 30 have all kinds of pronouns in them. And it's a little bit hard to trace, I think, which pronoun belongs to which antecedent, right? So uh, who are we talking about in verse 28? Are, are we talking about they, as in the enemy that he talked about in verse 27? Or does he kind of switch and say of Israel that they are a nation void of counsel? Uh, is he saying that they, Israel, they, they're lacking some, aw- they have lack of awareness of, of who they are and their lack of wisdom. And they're not understanding even the things that are happening rightly. Or is he speaking of the enemy? Or, or perhaps does through this 28 through 30, does he switch? I don't know that I'm, I'm sure. I think it could go either way, but what is not perceived by whoever this is, whether it's the enemy or Israel, is that this is the Lord's doing. It's the Lord, verse 27, who did all this. That's what's not perceived. And so what should be obvious, whether this is speaking of the enemy, the nations out there, or of Israel, what should be obvious is verse 31. Their rock is not our rock, and our enemies are by themselves. Possible that again, that this is speaking of the enemy all the way through, and it's say, well, their rock, Israel's rock, is, is not our rock. And so we recognize that must be the Lord's doing. And it's possible that Israel is this nation that is void of counsel, that has no understanding in them, that don't discern their latter end. Like, how could we have chased 10,000? But the Lord is our rock. That's how. But that is what is to be perceived, is verse 31. Their rock is not our rock, and our enemies are by themselves. There's different rocks, and and they come from different roots. Verse 32, their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly though god speaks of these curses and will use the nations to judge israel like sodom and gomorrah before those nations too will be judged that's the root the root of sodom and gomorrah is the the root of the nations that god is going to pour judgment down upon so again is this a fun song to sing yet And I think that's part of the point. It's a hard song to sing. Hard words to read. But it's in verse 36 that I think there's a bit of an unexpected turn. Because we're in the midst of speaking of of pending doom. Of curses being cast down upon Israel. Judgment on the nations. And verse 36 says, For the Lord will vindicate or judge his people. And have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Israel is brought to a low spot. They're they're at the point where they have no power, no leaders. And yet at that point, that's the point where God says he's going to have compassion on his people. It's as if it's at the end of themselves with no power, no leaders, that that's where God is found. But he questions them. Verse 37, then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. He's calling out their idolatry. 
Where are those gods now? How can they help you now when you have no leaders and you have no power? Where are they now? He's calling forth from them their, their folly and saying, do you see it now? Do you, do you see how senseless you've been now? How different the Lord than all those gods that you've been relying upon. They can't help you. Now you're without power. Now you have no leaders. You, you've been brought down to nothing. Where are they now? But the Lord alone is different. Verse 39. It says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. How different the Lord than the ones he, he had just talked to them about. Let those gods rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. But the Lord, he's different. He's the sovereign one over all things. He is the one who kills and makes alive, who wounds and heals. There is no God beside them, beside him, and he will put all things right. That's what he goes on to say. Verse 40, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my blood shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Not only is he the only God, the, the sovereign one, who says that there is no other God beside me, but he is the one who also, verse 39, he is the one who can kill and make alive, who can wound and he can also heal. Yeah, he pours out judgment upon Israel. Yes, he, he pours down judgment on the nations. But he's also the one who can make alive. He's also the one who can heal. And there is no other place to turn when your power is gone, when you have no leaders, except for the one who can heal. Except for the one who in that place can make you alive. And that's what the Lord is putting before them. I'm the only one that does that. I'm the only healing place. I'm the only place where you can find life. And so it's fitting then that we end with verse 43 in this song. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children. And he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. And he cleanses his people's land. Moses brings the song all the way around to, to where it began in a sense. The, the heavens were called forth as a, as a witness and part of this song before them. And here the heavens are, are called back in. They are participating again because of the work of the Lord they're participating. Look into this. Rejoice, O heavens, because of the work of the Lord. In verse 4, after the, the greatness of God and proclamation of his name, in verse 4 it tells us, all his ways, they're all justice. And he's the one who here, verse 43, avenges. In verse 4, this is a God without iniquity. Verse 43, here's the God who takes vengeance on his adversaries. He is the upright one. He's going to set all things right. In verse 5, Israel is the ones who are the blemished ones. In verse 43, he cleanses. And it's in that word, cleanse, that I think we find the most hope in all of this song. This song has been hard to sing. I think about talking about his arrows, drunk with blood. That's a hard song to sing. 
And verse 43 somehow seems to end with praise. We're rejoicing after all of this judgment and curse has been fallen upon Israel. But here in verse 43, there's rejoicing. I think it's in part because of that word cleanse in verse 43. The land that he speaks of is not already clean. It needs cleansing. And who cleanses? It's God who takes the initiative to cleanse. So in other words, in that word cleanse, I think that he's saying after all these judgments, after all these curses, there's hope for restoration. There's hope for salvation through God's work. How does the cleansing come? How does that hope come? It comes through judgment. It doesn't erase all that judgment. It comes through that judgment. Through judgment comes cleansing. Through judgment comes salvation. Through judgment comes restoration. Through judgment is this word cleanse. So this song is certainly a song of warning and woe. It's kind of dark for a national song, but I think that it points Israel in the right direction. Israel is this nation corrupt, forgetful, without power. God is the one who is the rock, the judge, the sovereign one, the avenger and cleanser. They are this nation that needs to be convinced of their sin and shown how they need to walk in response to all that God is. They are a nation that needs to be shown their sin, and this is what it leads to. The consequences very clearly. God is the rock, the judge, the sovereign one, the avenger and the cleanser. They are the ones that need to remember who he is, what he has done, and be warned by those things so they might fear the Lord and keep his word. But the compassion after judgment of verse 36 and the cleansing after judgment of verse 43, I think, points to Israel as having a future hope. Because we read this song and we, we are starting to lean in more and more to the fact that Israel is going to get in the promised land and they're going to fail. Yet, there's compassion in verse 36 and there's cleansing in verse 43. There's future hope. See, God is the one in all these verses who brings salvation through judgment. And that's needed because as they go, they're going to be this nation that continues to be corrupt, forgetful, and without power. How's God going to bring this compassion? How's God going to bring this cleansing through judgment? He's not going to pour out that cleansing judgment upon the nations one day. He's not going to pour out that cleansing judgment upon Israel one day. One day he's pointing to that he's going to pour it out upon himself. God himself is going to take on the judgment that the nations deserve, the judgment that Israel deserves, the curse that Israel deserves on himself. So that then all then who look to him can be saved. All who put their faith and their trust in the God who died for them, taking upon their curse and their judgment, will be saved. That's the hope that Israel has. That's the hope that this song leans into. That as they look forward, it looks kind of dire and we're singing a dark song. But we also get glimmers of something that God is up to that's in the future that we can cling on to. But church... We cling to that same hope, that God is bringing salvation through judgment, that our salvation is through judgment. We deserve God to pour out his wrath upon us, but we trust in Jesus, and when we trust in Jesus, the judgment that we deserve has already been poured out on him. 
And so we get to enjoy the blessings of the promised land in eternity with God. Now, here's what we also need to know is that the future of judgment and woe and warning still is in front of us. That all those who don't trust in Jesus still have the threat of judgment on their heads. And there is only one place to get out from underneath the curse and judgment that that deserves, and that's through repentance and trusting in Jesus. And so as the church, we're going to take a meal we call the Lord's Supper. And if you're not a believer and haven't trusted in Jesus, we would instead say, don't take this meal, repent and believe. And your judgment can be taken too. But if you are a believer, there's only one way of escape from the judgment of God. And it's been provided for you in the person of Jesus. This meal remembers that. So look back and remember rightly and take action upon that remembrance that Jesus died so that you might live, that his blood was poured out so that your sins might be cleansed, that his body was broken so that you might have an eternity with him forever. So take this meal in remembrance of what he's done. Let the memory and the remembrance of what Jesus has done drive you to action of by faith taking this juice and this bread. Let's pray together as we prepare. Father, we want to thank you for your word and the songs that you've given. Song helps put in our memory rightly who you are and what you have done in some ways that just plain words don't do. Song provokes and invokes our emotions and our very being so that we might be moved to respond to you. So I pray for all those who have heard this song, heard your word this morning, that they might respond rightly to all that you are and all that you have done. Part of that response for those who have faith should be to continue to walk in repentance and faith and to take this meal. Part of the response for those who have not yet put their trust in you is to repent and put their faith in Christ and start learning what it is to follow after him. And part of our response through it all is to do exactly what this song did at the beginning and at the end. Part of our response is to be doxological, is to be full of praise. That you are the rock of our salvation, our shelter, our deliverer, the one who has given us hope, the one who has shown us compassion, the one who has cleansed us through your son Jesus. And so God, may we take this meal by faith, may we rejoice in faith, that you are who you say you are and that we can live our lives in dependence upon you and never be let down. God, encourage your people and call in and draw those who are not yet yours. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We invite you to come and get a piece of bread and grab a cup and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf when you're ready.